There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. I wanna know what you're thinking. Tell me what's on your mind. Welcome to Now Playing's review of American Psycho. I think they even wrote a book about him. Only in America. Pure energy. A review chosen by Podbean backer Brent Eisinger. You are so kind, mister. You're kind. You're a kind man. Hosted by Arnie. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. Stuart. I know my uh, behavior can be erratic sometimes. And Jacob. I think I've identified this person as a textbook sociopath. This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. Let's look at lewd. I'm in no mood for a lewd conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. Now, listen. Listen very, very carefully. Today we're discussing American Psycho, starring Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto, Josh Lucas, Samantha Mathis, Matt Ross, Bill Stage, Chloe Savini, Kara Seymour, Justin Theroux, One of the Year Turner, Reese Witherspoon, directed by Mary Heron. This is Arnie, your American podcasting psycho. And Stuart. And this is the idea of Jacob, just some kind of abstraction. <laughs> I thought for sure you were going to be like, this is Jacob. And I wake up in the morning, I put an eye, if my eyes are puffy. I, put... I did have that one reserved. I was also going to tell you to look into my butthole. <laughs> I don't just look at it, I eat it. <laughs> I think Jacob's going to have his own side podcast where he goes through grooming tips. And I look forward to that. Why am I the grooming one? I, I got horrible grooming. <laughs> it could be fun. Anyway, why are we doing American Psycho? I think it's because we had a wonderful patron who asked us just to cover this original 2000 movie. Yeah, Brent B. Singer, he previously donated for us to review Amadeus. Okay. Oh, okay. He's sticking with the A section of his video store <laughs> with American <laughs> Psycho. And he picked this movie mainly because he says he thinks it's good, but not great. But he returns to it over and over again. When he's feeling nihilistic, it hits his sweet spot. So I think it is to him what Fight Club is to me. When you're just feeling like a nihilist, he says he likes the dark humor, the satire on yuppie life. He says the book is better, but has elements that would turn readers off. He thinks the movie is more accessible to a larger audience. That's funny. I did get strong Fight Club vibes off of watching it this time. You know, it's Fight Club if they didn't start a Fight Club. <laughs> Mm -hmm. How could you not? And it should just be said, this movie came out in the year 2000, April, eight months before Fight Club beat him to the punch. So even though this is based on a novel that came before Fight Club the book, I do think for moviegoers, this might have looked like the copycat. I remember this movie coming out. I was excited. I 
just had heard good buzz around it. I didn't see it in theaters. I saved it for video. But there was good talk about it being funny and American Psycho. I'd heard it was like a slasher. I went in expecting gleeful murder. And what I got wasn't what I expected. And I walked away with a bad taste in my mouth because the Christian Bale stilted performance while talking about Huey Lewis wasn't the kind of gleeful rolling around in your intestines horror I was hoping for. Oh, see, I would call that gleeful. <laughs> I do see this as a gleeful slasher. Well, let's frame this a different way. It's not Freddy Krueger. If you came here thinking that this is the yuppie Freddy Krueger or Michael Myers, I think there's reason to be disappointed right at the get-go. And that would come if you knew the source material. American Psycho is a very notorious title because the book received an extreme ban when it came out. There were protests. Women's groups went into Barnes & Noble and poured blood over all the copies or read from it to try and gross people out and dissuade them from buying it. This is the best viral ad campaign ever. Well, yeah, many stores said we're not going to carry something like that. And you're right. What does that do for people that like provocative entertainment? Oh, I got to see that. I got to read that. Like, ooh, banned and too extreme. I think it's true of both the movie and the book. I think what will shock people, gore hounds, is that, yeah, when you come to this, it has a lot more to do with, like, manscaping and what restaurants you want to attend when you go to New York City. It's a largely plotless movie about uh, metrosexuality. Yeah, what if Freddy wanted to do something about his awful skin? That is American <laughs> Psycho. It is, it is. And so, I, again, if you came for the ultraviolence, you get a droll comedy where half the book is just vapid rich people going to restaurants and talking about making lots of money without working very hard. The killing really doesn't even start until the second half. That's going to be a real disappointment for uh, the horror audience this was built to. See, and just to put it out there, when I saw this, I was 26, which sounds old in my mind, and I felt fully adult, but looking back, I was not as well-read as I am now. I didn't look as deeply into things now. I had no idea who Brett Easton Ellis was when I watched this, even though Less Than Zero was a movie that I'd watched a lot, and enjoy is a weird word to use for it. But I, again, if I'm feeling nihilistic, Less Than Zero is a movie that I can go to. And knowing who the author was of the book, I think I would have had a very different expectation coming to this movie than I did just off the title and the trailers. Although I'm going to hit the brakes on this because yes, Brett Easton Ellis was a celebrated 80s novelist. He was considered a young up-and-comer that was going to be a literary sensation. Didn't quite happen, but yes, his first book was Less Than Zero. You saw the movie, you didn't read the book because there's a world of difference. No, I had seen the movie many times then. I have read the book since. So you know the book is a comedy that laughs at drug addiction. The movie makes it seem like it's this real nihilistic go-to-hell, just-say-no experience. Well, the movie actually advocates just-say-no, and the book says, yeah, do whatever the fuck you want. I'm rich. Yeah, exactly. That book is a very good comparison with American Psycho, the movie, and I would assume the book. I have not read the book for American Psycho. I read it for this review, but hadn't before. 
If I'd known then what I knew now, I'd have gone into American Psycho with very different expectations, and I've wanted to revisit this for a long time. But I watched this with Marjorie. We were very early on dating. She hated this movie. I've never really had a time to rewatch it because often I'm either watching stuff for now playing or I'm watching stuff with Marjorie and she hated this movie. And so I've just wanted to go back to it, wanted to go back to it. So thanks, Brent. Now I am getting a chance 20 years later to revisit American Psycho. Yeah, it should be said in the book. I read it for the first time just this week to prep for this. It is like the sequel to Lesson Zero, the book. Like, it is largely fragmented. There isn't really a heavy plot. Sometimes you're not even sure. I think in this one, you're a little bit more sure who the main character is. But it hops around without you having a real sense about what's going on or or skits, I guess is what I would ultimately say. It's droll skits about people that think they're running the world, but they're actually just really removed from the everyday-to-day life of people. You know, they buy tickets to Les Mis, which is a show about, you know, the poor masses that revolt in France, but they have nothing for the panhandlers outside the theaters. It's that kind of irony. So the psycho part, you know, I think that you think of, well, that means he's a killer, he's a psychopath. I would say it's more about a psychotic break. Patrick Bateman doesn't kill a lot of people in that novel. He has more, like, instances of, like, talking to inanimate objects. At one point, he goes to a U2 concert, and he believes Bono is whispering to him that he's the devil. He thinks he encounters Tom Cruise in his elevator and compliments him on what a great job he did in Cocktail. That made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not really... Again, if you want to see somebody go and sadistically kill someone, like Maniac or something, like that ain't this book, even. I do think there are some violent moments that way at the end that will put people off but in the end it's not about that and I think that the book was misunderstood and took advantage of its controversial aspects to market itself as something that yeah it doesn't surprise me that Marjorie who I do consider a gorehound wasn't into this movie or into this presentation I think the movie that we're here to talk about largely reflects the book that Brett Easton Ellis wrote But how familiar are you guys with this director, Mary Heron? Not at all. Nothing. I looked her up and I'm like, I have no idea who this person is. She's worked a lot in television and some shows I've seen. Yeah, yeah. She got this mostly because she had just made an indie movie called I Shot Andy Warhol. Lily Taylor played a real-life person who did go after Andy Warhol and put him in the hospital. Didn't kill him, but uh, was considered kind of a psychopath had some mental issues at any rate. And I think that they thought, well, that might be enough to make her interested in the subject matter. And I think, quite frankly, they were looking for a female director. Because feminists had attacked this material for so long, they really wanted some protection. They wanted a female director to say, no, what I'm presenting here is not misogynist. It's actually with a feminist critique, which is what the author said he wanted it to be interpreted as to begin with. Then why'd they fire her and hire Oliver Stone instead? What? Well, actually, if we're going back to the history of the project, the person that got this going, he never was signed for it, but probably surprises no one that Johnny Depp really wanted to be the American psycho. And he really loved the film Reanimator. He asked Stuart Gordon to do it. They were going to do it as a black and white indie way early in the 90s. I think even before like Ed Wood or any of that stuff, right after Edward Scissorhands. Let's just remember, this is Honey, I Shrunk the Kid, Stuart Gordon. 
Yeah, okay. I guess so. Yes. He had he had done all kinds of movies, but mostly I think of him as midnight movie horror. They never got signed for this. The people that optioned the book never seriously considered Stuart Gordon. They signed David Cronenberg, who did make a lot of sense, who does have a reputation in the horror genre for sure, but I also think he just particularly in the 90s, was attracted to making unfilmable, controversial, counterculture novels. Yeah, I think if Cronenberg was doing this, that cat definitely would have been fed to the ATM. You would see <laughs> yes. that the jaws open up on that ATM, it would have been great. Yeah, Naked Lunch, Crash, like it, this is in his wheelhouse. He worked on a script with the author, Brett Easton Ellis did actually try and write this. And he said the challenge was that Cronenberg didn't want to use the stuff in the book. He wanted him to write new scenes and I think maybe create more of a narrative. Because again, you read that book and it's all scattered. There's not a story that really gets told. And I think Cronenberg was looking to connect all that tissue. That's weird he wanted the author to do that because he put a narrative into Naked Lunch. There ain't no narrative in that book. Like, he tackled William S. Burroughs. I don't figure this would be much tougher. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's hard to make the author do something to their material that they don't want to. They also looked at Brian De Palma and, crazy enough, Rennie Harland. What? (laughs) Oh, no. I know. You have to smile about that. But you mentioned Oliver Stone. And what happened was Barry Heron was the chosen director. She and Guinevere Turner hammered out a script. They passed it around. They were looking at different actors. They landed pretty much on Christian Bale, who at that time was not even a leading man. It should be said, Christian Bale in the late 90s was the little kid from Empire of the Sun and Newsies. That's when this movie came out. Everybody just said the kid from Newsies. And they weren't even giving him the credit of Empire of the Sun. That's all I knew him as. Even when he became Batman. I'm like, the guy from Newsies? You're a big Newsies fan? Yeah. Well, I've never seen it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think many people have. Or at least at the time, it was considered a flop Disney musical. And yeah, he wasn't really... He didn't even have the reputation of being this star of little grimy indie movies. Like, he's six years away from Batman. This is sort of the movie that gets him on the lips of casting directors thinking about edgy performers, actors that are willing to physically transform for their part. Christian Bale was ready to do all of that. And, uh, well, what happened was the script wound up in the lap of Leonardo DiCaprio, post-Titanic. And he said, you know... (laughs) I really want to do this as my follow-up. And that meant that all of a sudden this production had a lot more money and nobody wanted to give little indie director Mary Heron that money. Nobody wanted to bank on these indie actors and this production she had set up. So it could have been a very commercial movie. Oliver Stone would have probably made it a $40 million or more kind of a natural born killers is what I'm imagining. A sequel to that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Cameron Diaz was also attached to that project. But what ultimately happened, legend has it, don't know if it's true or not, but people connected to this production we're here to talk about say that they heard Leo was pulled aside by the infamous writer, feminist Gloria Steinem, who really like grabbed him by the ear and said, all of your fans are 14-year-old girls and you're going to subject them to this. That is cruel. That is unfair. You should not do this. And because of that, he pulled out and made The Beach with Danny Boyle instead. And Mary Heron got to make the movie she wanted with the actor she wanted and a very small $6 million budget. Is it for the best? I guess we could talk about it. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot? Christian Bale is Patrick Bateman, your typical 1987 yuppie. 
He's so typical that many of his co-workers don't even remember his name, confusing him for other yuppies. Neither his fetishistic expertise in pop music nor his bone-white business cards set Patrick apart. Of course, no one would forget Bateman's name if they knew that at night he satisfied his bloodlust by killing first homeless people, then hookers. His first killing out of hate, though, is co-worker Paul Allen, played by Jared Leto. Allen has a nicer business card, a bigger apartment, and can actually get a reservation at Dorcia. And Paul is one of those who can't remember who Pat is, so Pat takes him out, gets him drunk, takes Paul back to his apartment, and butchers him with an axe. Pat tries to make it look like Paul went to London, but his disappearance causes the family to hire private investigator Donald Kimball, played by Willem Dafoe. The stress starts to get to Paul, but he also continues to satiate his bloodlust, taking victims to Paul's now vacant apartment for the slaughter. That leads to a rampage when he tries to smush a kitten into an ATM. <laughs> an old woman witnesses this, so he shoots and kills the woman. Other witnesses are shot, and Patrick ends up on the run from the police. He shoots the cop cars, and they explode, and Patrick actually escapes. But panicked, he calls his lawyer and confesses all his crimes. But Patrick is never arrested. The next day, he goes to Paul's apartment, where the real estate agent has cleared out all the bodies, painted the apartment, and tells Patrick to never return. Patrick sees his lawyer at a restaurant, and the attorney not only thought Patrick's call was a joke, but confuses Patrick for someone else. When Patrick insists he killed Paul, the lawyer says it's impossible as he had had lunch with Paul in London last week. Patrick is confused, but realizes he's gotten away with his crimes, at least thus far, as credits roll. And as we start, we see what looks like drops of blood become raspberry coolie on a very fancy plate. And we're playing with imagery of what looks like Carnage actually being the trademarks and the exclusive rights of the upper class of the 80s. Worth pointing out, they're keeping this in period. This movie comes out April 2000, but it is covering a time that is 13, 14 years past. I think that's a wise decision, personally, because I think, well, when I think of yuppie serial killers, the 80s makes a whole lot more sense than the Clinton years. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. If you try to update this, it would have been about what? Silicon Valley, the tech bubble that was going on then. I feel like things have gone so far, like this whole yuppie thing makes sense again in 2021. Like, yeah, it, it just fits better in that setting. Agreed. I think part of what was drawing me to this was the 80s-ish of it and the fact that basically this is a parody of Wall Street with a lot more blood. I mean, if Oliver Stone had made this, it would have been a companion piece. You could have even had Charlie Sheen do a cameo. But here, I mean, they've got the slicked back hair of Gordon Gecko and the fancy suits. And yeah, in the 90s, it just did not feel so cool to hate on the businessmen. I mean, let's just be clear. And I'm not trying to be political with this. I'm not trying to take a stand or not. But in Republican eras, there was less regulation of the financial market. And so we do have more excess in those times. And so I think that, yeah, there was a lot of deregulation and what have you in the 90s that it just wouldn't have been the go-go time that with the junk bonds that the 80s was. And plus, again, I was getting really excited about seeing the 80s on screen. I remember talking about when Boogie Nights came out. It was a big thrill to me because nobody looked at the 80s as a period piece until that film. It was really excited to think my childhood was now something that people wanted to go back and look at because I always felt like the 80s was ignored. It wasn't considered a serious counterculture decade. It didn't get the big movies 
Well, now it became trendy, certainly around this time, to tell a lot of stories in the 80s. I'm all for keeping Patrick Bateman at that time. You got excited about that? It just made me feel old. Once my generation became a period piece, once Gen Z started referring to my childhood as the late 1900s, no thank you. Well, no, I mean, I'm not so thrilled about it now, but at the time, (laughs) it felt like Hollywood was finally paying attention to me. It felt like, oh good, I finally matter, they're going to tell my stories. And this is a Lionsgate movie, but that was back when it was a two-letter company. Like, this was before Saw, they didn't really have the image of torture porn and extreme violence. Maybe American Psycho is helping them get that identity, but at that time, they were just a struggling indie company. Yeah, I wouldn't have recognized their name at all, whereas later on, I would associate them with things like, you know, Punisher, Warzone, and Saw, and it doesn't have to be horror, but I think it had to be bloody. But quickly, the sense of blood goes away because, yeah, we're at a fancy restaurant, and these are yuppies that are basically going to shit-talk other yuppies. Wall Street is a good comparative. Are we supposed to make fun of the menus that are being read? Because honestly, I haven't been out to eat in a few years because of COVID. I haven't eaten in a restaurant. But all of this sounds just like a wonderful night out. You know, give me the roast rabbits and the, what were they discussing? The raspberry sorbet. I mean, this is fancy stuff that I haven't had the opportunity to eat in two or three years. Yeah, the food's great, but come on, can we leave this anti-Semitism out of it? Like, that's the funny stuff for me is, yeah, all these yuppies destroying the world with their wealth. But come on, guys, no anti-Semitism. Like, that's where I draw the line. Like, and they'll do that throughout this film. Like, a lot of great conversations with these ironies where these guys on Wall Street, these weird lines they draw for their morality. Yeah, well, Patrick Bateman, that's Christian Bale's character, is the one to object to all of this toxic talk about other people because yeah someone gets called a lucky jew bastard that's when he wants to put the brakes on things but if you realize in the dialogue there it's not because that's coming from any deep political belief we'll find out this is a character that feels he has nothing internal to offer or experience or feel emotionally he is dating a woman who you know is probably jewish and is certainly all about causes and so they razz him that he's dating someone from the aclu he has to be quote quote-unquote, this liberal because he is engaged. I mean, he's virtue signaling, though, right? I mean, we know coming in that he's the American psycho, so the deeper irony is that this guy who doesn't care about human life is going to be saying, don't be anti-Semitic, and it just operates on those layers. I mean, we get that all the time, though, from the rich. I mean, Seth Rogen just called out Hollywood about following COVID. All these liberals in Hollywood follow the science, but, you know, it's an Emmy. It's an award show. We're going to get together and not wear a mask and not really be six feet apart. Like, so, yeah, they're rich. They're powerful. They'll say they're for a cause, but they're not really. They're for themselves. More to the point, Patrick Bateman always says it with this big, wide smile which leads me to believe that he actually is mocking what he's saying. The sincerity meter is turned way down. Later, there'll be a downtown artist that tries to throw shade at them at another restaurant, and he's going to just mock the idea that, yes, we're going to save all the babies and protect all the countries. Like He's not meaning that when he's saying that. He's definitely way more into Phil Collins than ending apartheid, for sure. Right, (laughs) exactly. He wants the Phil Collins answers to all these world problems. We Are the World was probably his jam three years before this. So do you like Bateman? That's, I think, the question to start on. 
as we spend a lot of time watching his day-to-day and seeing what there is to see about his internal psychology, are we to think that he is cool, sinister, foolish? To me, because this movie will ultimately land most closely in the genre of comedy, far more than a thriller or a horror movie, I think he looks like a joke. I think that we're looking at a real doofus. Yeah, I, I think that is part of the goal of this film. Again, I didn't read that book, so but definitely in this film, yeah, Bateman is a joke. Whenever he's talking about whatever cause he's for or they're comparing business cards, like it's all about vapidness. Yeah, he's an empty vessel as he it's the one thing he is aware of about himself. He just wants to fit in. He has no personality. He doesn't even exist. But is he any different than those who surround him? I mean, you ask, do I like him? And I don't know anyone who would be able to like him. But you look at the people around him, and they're all just like him. They're all obsessed with the color of their business cards and who can get the best reservations. Yeah, no, this should be called American Psychos because, yeah, everyone here is a psycho. It's just Bateman is our protagonist, our focus character. But, yeah, I believe every other person he's interacting with is just as bad and empty as him. Yeah, but the difference is the reason why it's psycho is he's the only one that's going to actually pick up the knife, the chainsaw. He's going to be the one to actually kill. And so that would be why you would like him is that in satire... It's not a requirement to care about characters. You actually can root for awful people to have bad ends. It's one of the few genres where you don't have to worry about empathy too much. So you could, quote-unquote, like Patrick Bateman specifically because he sees what you see and wants to rid the world of these people, too. Yeah, I'll say I like Bateman because it's a comedic role. It's a comedic performance. It's satirical, as you pointed out, Stuart. And so, yeah, I don't have to agree with him, but he could have one foot in criticizing this culture, this yuppie culture he's stuck in. And he's also part of it, though. And so to see him being taken down by that culture as well. Yeah, I enjoy watching the performance. I enjoy this character because it's a comedic, satirical role. And I like to go on that journey. And I have real trouble going with him on this journey. You say that satire is the one genre where you don't have to have empathy for your main character. That makes it a very difficult genre, though. If you aren't liking anybody on screen, it's sometimes difficult to get into the film. I think the first time I saw this movie, I thought Patrick Bateman was supposed to be cool. I'd seen in trailers or clips the business card thing, and I thought that was actually supposed to be something you were supposed to strive for, is you wanted the business card with the embossed letters and the subtle coloring. Yeah, I thought that was like a life goal because my dad had business cards. Like, if you're in business, you got a business card. So when I was in my 20s, I'm like, I need to get a job where I get a business card. That means you've made it. I started my own business when I was 19, and I got myself a business card and felt so adult. But it wasn't bone. It wasn't embossed. <laughs> it wasn't eggshell. Like, yeah, you can't tell the difference between any of these cards. Which is, of course, the symbolism of it. Yeah. To the outsider, they all look the same. But when you get into the thick of it, all these people are so jealous. Like, all it takes is just, like, some change of a font. And they're all seething. Yeah, a watermark. Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> it is funny. But I think when I saw this before... I thought I was supposed to envy those business cards, and now I realize the utter foolishness of this. Yeah, it's like Heathers for the yuppie set. Mm, Heathers is a good comparative, I think, for the tonal pitch. 
It does feel that broad, that big, kind of sophomoric, really. Like, you wouldn't have to play the novel this way. There are moments in the novel that feel this way. But overall, I would say this is broader and more chipper than the novel's tone. And the reason why Mary Heron, reason why she went with Christian Bale, unknown British actor, was she said he was the only actor that in auditioning for this part didn't ask her, what's my motivation? What's the psychology of this character? I want to understand what's going on in his head. Christian Bale understood I'm playing a cartoon that has nothing interior, and I'm just going to have fun with that. I think you see that in this performance. It's not a deep performance, but it's a fully lived-in performance. He really commits, and obviously when we see him doing his physical regimen, this is hours and months of work in the gym for Christian Bale to transform his scrawny body into this Adonis physique. Oh, yeah. When he says he does a thousand crunches, I totally believe him. Like, he actually did that before they said roll on set. Like, he had to do his thousand crunches. What I love is that I'd read Bale didn't know how to find this character. He really had trouble finding the character. And then he saw Tom Cruise do an interview and he's like, Tom Cruise is Patrick Bateman. (laughs) That smile that doesn't reach his eyes, the fakeness of it all. The broadness. So when you're seeing Bale here, you're seeing his interpretation of Tom Cruise slightly more psychotic. And again, in the book, Tom Cruise is a character. He lives in the same building as Bateman. And Tom Cruise cocktail specifically is, I think, what they were going for. Are they making fun of cocktail? Who doesn't? (laughs) Only you don't. Everyone is except you, Artie. You're the only (laughs) one that didn't get the joke. Maybe I was too drunk on champagne. But here... I'm noticing this time a lot more of the satire, and I'm having a lot of fun laughing at these people and at the 80s, and the fact that you say it's very broad, Stuart, and I believe it is, but I also do believe this level of backbiting, jealous clawing for the top would be the pervasive culture of New York in the 80s. Sure. And the fact that, you know, even his personal life, when we meet his fiance, they're only engaged because it works with her schedule. And this is more clear in the book, but they have almost no moment where they look at each other or interact with each other. They are purely a social construct that goes around and engages with other couples, but have no relationship of their own. I don't even think they have sex. Yeah, they have sex with other people, I think. And it's hilarious (laughs) because they can't get married because Bateman can't take time off of work. Like, mm-hmm. fun joke. Although we never see anybody work that much. You know, this does remind me of one of those sitcoms. He's at the office, but what does he do? I think later there's going to be the joke of murders and executions. Oh, mergers and acquisitions, but I never see him merge. I never see him acquire. Yeah, obviously, I will say this. I have worked at the Chicago Board of Trade. Those people do work. In fact, they're adrenaline junkies. They get really excited about their work. That's the cocaine. Yeah, Yeah. all the cocaine in the bathroom. (laughs) Yes, I agree. There is that going on. But uh, I do feel like this is just done for the movie's sake. The idea that this is a character that has nothing to do, that as soon as everyone has left his office, he's turning on Jeopardy or what have you. It was a big running joke in the novel that he was addicted to this talk show. And whatever was going on with the subject matter of the talk show would become a part of his day. He was very influenced by the other things around him. And so you could ask the question... Why does a character this vapid that has no ideas of his own suddenly get the idea that they want to kill? What is the thing that makes him snap? 
Is this his first kill that we see on the film? Because I can't tell, given this movie, the title, and the way everything is played, if when we do see him kill a homeless person, is that his first foray into killing? Or is this just, we've been introduced into Patrick Bateman's life through his work, through his lunches, through his girlfriend, fiance, and now being introduced to it through his hobby? Because there's a scene earlier before he stabs this homeless guy where he's taking some sheets in to get clean because he's saying it's cranberry juice. Maybe it's blood. We don't know. So he could have been killing even before this. Yeah, he was at an ATM. A woman passed. The sign says don't walk. Every indication in this moment that she's being told that walking with Patrick Bateman is going to lead to nothing good. And they cut to those red, yeah, stained sheets. I don't know. There's nothing to think that... Up to this point in the story, at any rate, there's nothing to have made him snap. We also saw him interact with a bartender, and he, you know, when she had her back turned, he made some threatening asides. But maybe all of this is just fantasies or thoughts. Maybe that is cranberry juice, and he hasn't killed until, I think it's Paul Allen that really makes him angry enough to murder. Paul Allen, the name is killing me. Because he was one of the founders of Microsoft. And so when they start talking about seeing Paul Allen in the corner, I'm like, oh, they're talking about the Microsoft guy. Later, I find out that there's actually a character named Paul Allen. And I'm like, oh, so they're not referring to the bearded hippie. No, no hippies allowed in here. (laughs) And I do think you called out Stuart at the bar when he goes off on the bartender there that he wants to kill her and... I think part of this is just if you get into Wall Street, if this is your lifestyle, if you're a yuppie, you are already psycho. You've already made that break from reality to even get into this world. Or it's the drugs again. I mean, we're going to see them later in the movie using cocaine. I don't know. Yeah, he does drugs. I don't take this as a literal film. This is metaphor. I know how much you love that, Arnie, but this is about what being a yuppie does to you. I don't think you take it. You know, you do cocaine and then you start killing. I don't think that's the point. But it can make you angry. No, the metaphor is, I mean, we have it in that moment where he's peeling off his facial mask. That, Like, I'm just an outside. There's nothing going on inside. And so, again, what would make a character like that want to kill as opposed to, you know, go join the circus? Someone like that can be influenced to do a great many things. I think it's because Paul Allen mistakes him for this other guy and has a better business card and can get into the restaurant that nobody else can get into. It's the fact of jealousy that I think that ultimately, it's certainly why he goes and kills the homeless man. And it's probably why he makes, I'm going to just guess, Paul Allen his first real kill. Well, and Paul Allen doesn't realize the brilliance of Huey Lewis in the news. So, reason to kill someone? Perhaps. Mm. This homeless man, though, there's a lot of foreplay before the stabbing. There's a lot of, you know... Why don't you have a job? And part of it is punishing slash making fun of the guy. And part of it, you know, he says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get a job. And because of the way we've heard him talk about philanthropy earlier in the movie, part of me is like, maybe this guy is so psycho, this could go either way. You know, maybe he's like Two-Face. He's going to flip a coin. Heads, I get you a job. Tails, you die. But... 
when the knife goes in, I wasn't sure this whole time if he was certain that that was going to be the end of that. But like you, Jacob, because of the sheets and the title, I figured he was murdering pretty regularly beforehand. There's no way to know. Again, the director, Mary Heron, said she wanted to emulate the broken narrative of the book. And because of that, we don't have the idea that there's an exciting incident that we're building up to an act one and act two. There's none of that. You're right. He could be a full-blown killer before we ever see him. Or maybe, yes, this is triggered by the fact that he saw this guy more successful than him charm all his friends. He has to go kill a homeless man to feel better about himself. And then that is the thing that gives him the taste for more murder. My sensibilities would say I would want more of a narrative construction. I would want to have connected more of the, what I'll call skits in this movie, into more of a narrative so that we would have a psychological profile and growth. It seems like we do to a degree. I mean, the beginning is introducing us to Patrick Bateman and his world and the Paul Allen connection. And yes, Paul Allen does appear to be the first murder out of hate, out of I want to kill you, not just I want to kill. And that then leads to further actions so that I'd say the first 45 minutes of this film, maybe a little longer, does feel like it would have a classic three-act structure. I mean, it has some, but again, we're debating as to whether anything that happens in the beginning here influences the character's homicidal instincts, and yeah, we can say for sure that Paul is targeted because not one, but twice he approaches Patrick and calls him by this other name, Marcus. Or is that who he really is. When we get to the end of this movie, we're going to find out that people are talking about Patrick to Christian Bale and not thinking that he is Patrick. Yeah, his lawyer calls him a different name at the end. Right, yeah, Marcus. And Marcus has this girlfriend, Cecilia. And some of the characters, you'll notice, they will refer to Christian Bale in that way. The dissociation may be, to bring up Fight Club, he may already be Tyler Durden. He may already have created the Brad Pitt in his head, and this perfect Adonis that does all of this stuff in morning ritual may in fact just be a fantasy. The voiceover, too, now that you're bringing up Fight Club, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of the first-person voiceover like Edward Norton has. Yeah, I can see why this felt like a runner-up in release order. Yeah. For sure. Very consumed with the same preoccupations. All about materialism and yeah, all that. Yeah. Consumerism is bad and that you can't buy your way into a satisfying life by yeah, getting a lot of money and going to Ikea. Um, as a proud Ikea shopper, yes, you can. Yes. Yes, you can. Don't believe the hippie lie of those movies. Well, I mean, I wonder how you are taking <laughs> the message here. It's pretty heavy about the unhappy lifestyle. You wanted to be a stockbroker or a, a banker at one point in your life, Arnie. Is this feeling like a smear campaign? Or a fantasy? I mean, do you see where these guys eat? Do you see the clothes they wear? I think we got our answer, Stuart. <laughs> it's kind of awful, actually. The way the clothes they're wearing is terrible. And I will knock the production on this. This is unfortunately a $7 million movie. And you can tell. 
you would really want this thing to look much more slick. You would want an Oliver Stone budget to be able to really capture the look of the 80s. And here, it's clearly sound stages in Toronto, right? Like, there's a staginess to all of this that it just doesn't look authentic. I'll agree with that. But this is the life I had hoped for when I wanted to be a stockbroker in my teen years. This is the life I wanted. I wanted the cocaine in the bathroom, okay? I wanted the big apartment looking over the park. And speaking of Paul, I feel really bad that I did not recognize Jared Leto in this role at all. The slicked back hair, the performance, I did not recognize him. I only recognized him because I saw his name in the credits. So I was keeping an eye out for him. So I'm like, oh, there he is. But yeah, if, if I didn't know he was in this, I don't know if I would have caught that. I mean, he looks how he looks, but I do think he's got a bad hairpiece on or a bad dye job, something like, again, just the hair makeup people, the art directors, they're really struggling to make the the pennies stretch here and they just don't have the opulence. You know, there's a holiday party where everything's Vietnamese, including a pot-bellied pig and all the elves and everything. And you just would want that to feel lavish and over the top. That's the whole point of Brett Easton Ellis is that he knows this world of privilege and these people have no idea what's going on, even though they think they're running the world. So you want Scorsese to come in here with that Wolf of Wall Street money and do this? Well, I do think Leonardo DiCaprio did end up making this movie. Yes, I do think (laughs) that the film got made, but not in this way. This is sort of the demo tape, as it were. This is the rough first draft. Now, as we get into this, let me ask, do you guys think the marketing campaign that did sell this as horror hurt this film? Because I think that the people who want Wolf of Wall Street won't want the gore this film has and the people who want the gore aren't going to appreciate the satire and period callbacks i'll say when this was marketed i'm like oh it's a slasher horror not really my thing so i never bothered seeing it i didn't see it until 2014 and then i kind of heard oh it's more satirical i didn't know some of the twists at the end but then i was more open to seeing it when i heard it wasn't just a straight slasher but yeah the fact that they marketed this as a horror film it kept me out of the theaters because i'm like ah, i don't really want to see that well here's what i would say they don't market it like an intense torture porn horror film it's pretty clear in all ads and commercials again you can't hide christian bale's smile it just in every moment he is just vacuously happy and everything that he's saying they really did play up the doofus quality of him i think you might think of him as yeah like a freddy krueger like someone that's going to make puns and and make comedy out of carnage but i don't think that you would think that it was going to be a scary movie so The disappointment would only be that you're not getting more kills, I would think. The audience would be disappointed that it's taken so long to finally get there. But uh, we've had to have dinner at this Texarkana restaurant. Why do they go to that place? That seems like they're going to go to a Chili's next. Oh, no, I love that. That's the whole point. If I'm going to kill you, I'm not going to take you to Dorcia. I'm not going to take you to the place where everyone's going to see us together. I'm going to take you to this shit restaurant, get you drunk there, and then I can kill you. Is that Ivanka? Yeah, that was a funny (laughs) jump, too. And it should be said, in the book, Trump was Patrick Bateman's idol. He comes up quite frequently. Yeah, I think he drops Trump's name once in this film and then, yeah, asks about Ivanka, but that's it. Yeah, it doesn't mean as much in 2000. You know, if they made this movie now, I think that they would... they bring in all that dialogue back from the book about Trump. <laughs> yeah, it would be a different thing, and I guess we can talk about that. 
The Apprentice wasn't even on when this movie came out. Correct. Yes. Trump was a figure of the long ago past. As was Huey Lewis in the news. And again, this is sort of the make or break moment when we have the character as he's preparing to get the axe and put on the raincoat and do all the things we'd expect any serial killer to do. He's popping in probably the worst song that Huey Lewis and the news ever recorded. Hip to be square. Not true. Their early stuff is worse. One of the worst, clearly. Isn't it all bad? That's my assumption. All right, as the Huey Lewis and the News fan. Oh, okay, we know who the American Psycho is on this show. I've been called Patrick Bateman on this show before for my defense of Huey. <laughs> but you say this is the make or break moment, Stuart. When I watched this the first time, this was break. Really? His little smile and the way he was going around and just rambling about Huey Lewis. And I didn't know about Huey Lewis's early career. I think didn't know that they had albums that weren't hits before their big break. They were kind of new wave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 As, as same thing with Genesis later is like, mm-hmm. he's always going to prefer like the band like became commercial and then I could like them, but that early stuff. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. The lamb lies down on Broadway was not going to be his jam or mine back then. So I'm, seeing him and the christian bale performance he's cranked up to 10 he's delivering things in a very stilted way and he just acts as this guy i was out back then whereas this time i'm like i'm into this i now understand the details he's talking about i can get the joke about how their early stuff was too new wave for him he much prefers hip to be square and how four is like the masterpiece yeah masterpiece of their library i mean i'm just i got a smile on my face as he's doing this little i don't know newsies like dance routine (laughs) step routine around getting the raincoat on and the big smile on his face yeah you say make or break this is the make moment for me because look you're gonna defend huey lewis wow you gotta be vapid like you gotta be empty like excuse me hey (laughs) (laughs) Look, we all know our musical taste, and I'm going to say, the only one I'll say maybe he's right about is Whitney Houston. Like, she could actually sing. Like, I don't like Phil Collins. Like, forget all this music. You're going to defend Hip to be Square, the song about conformity? Of course he would. (laughs) Yes. That song is actually not about conformity if you listen to Patrick Bateman discuss it. It's on the surface about conformity. No, I think he likes it because of the difficulty. I don't think there's anything below the surface with Huey Lewis. And Whitney Houston, like, what he's celebrating is the greatest love of all has an important message and that it's impossible to empathize with others, only ourselves. Which is like, okay, I guess you could get that out of that song, but I I don't think that was what she was going for. (laughs) Again, what he's hearing and everything he's consuming is validating the idea that he should be nothing but a shiny, perfect-looking surface. That if he were to try and develop a personality or care about others, it would be an impulse going in the wrong direction. Best to be square. That's the hippest thing you can do, is to just stay vapid. But then, does he... Obviously, this murder was planned out, because he said to Paul, let's go get dinner sometime... And he knew where they were going to go. He knew all of that. Got him drunk. He already had the newspaper on the floor. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. He had his raincoat ready to go. But did he have it planned out that he would also go and try to stage 
Paul's disappearance? Because that seems to come in a panic. Like, he had the murderer that all of a sudden went, oh shit, now I have to clean up after my own mess. I agree, it's inconsistent. And again, if you were trying to think of this movie as a story and developing character and and looking at his psychology, then yeah, these are problems. Like, I feel it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, no. I know with now playing, we like to go through film chronologically, but there is the question, like, is any of this even happening or is it totally subjective? Maybe it's happening in some form, but it's not happening as we're seeing it. We're seeing it filtered through Bateman's eyes. So to me, yeah, you can complain. Maybe there's not much of a narrative, but it's an unreliable narrator that's telling the story anyway. Yeah, agreed. But I guess to Arnie's point, why didn't he do a better job of covering this all up? Why didn't he have the tub of acid already ready? It does feel like a half-baked plan. And uh, I don't know where he even had the ideas to come up with it. I mean, I guess we'll see him later working out the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think slasher movies and porn films. Porn, yeah. (laughs) That's how he's learned anything about the world and how to have sex and how to kill people. It worked for me. (laughs) (laughs) But it's an interesting thing that... After the murder, he goes to Paul's apartment and the voiceover tells us he's upset because the apartment's overlooking the park. It's a much nicer apartment than mine. That's what's on his mind. Well, this is why I think he really decides he could be a killer. Like, I do feel like, oh, now I have a space to be my other self, to indulge in this. I don't necessarily want to do this in my apartment all the time, but I could bring hookers here. And we will see that that becomes experimentation at first it's not uh actually to kill them it's just yeah maybe to torture them but he's bringing them over in this space because no one will know him there i did watch the unrated cut of this i don't know what you guys did yes i the disc that i got said uncut and i had to look up to see what was added or i guess uncut from this one yeah about 18 seconds of sex with the hookers yeah if you hear the words show her your asshole that's unrated if you hear the word show her your ass that's r-rated yep that's it (laughs) oh okay i guess i saw the rated then didn't realize it she was not told to gaze into the asshole (laughs) yeah because i thought it was a little bit bold when i was watching this in 2000 i saw the rated cut and it said show her your ass and then later don't just stare at it eat it yeah who was eating ass in the 80s that's like a thing now I know, right? That's like a millennial thing. But when I saw this initially, I thought she was just eating the vagina, right? Because if you're bent over, (laughs) you see both. But this time, when it says, bend over, show your asshole, and then don't just stare at it, eat it, I'm like, oh, they're eating ass. Okay. I guess that's why it's unrated. (laughs) Right. And of course, where is he getting these ideas for how sex should be? From his video store. This is what he does. He goes, he rents these videos, and that's what he thinks that should be. And yeah, you can tell, like, in these moments, what's most interesting about them is that he's not even engaged in these women. He doesn't find them beautiful. He's not attracted to them. Yeah, he's flexing in the mirror. Yeah, he finds himself beautiful. Right. And Susudio, which, you know, great, great song, right? (laughs) Crystal favorite, Arnie? That's your favorite Genesis song? (laughs) Well, first of all, Susudio's Colin Solo Oh, I'm sorry. Is that your Phil Collins song? No, it might be trite, but in the air tonight, and I do agree, Invisible Touch is pretty much untouchable by the Genesis oeuvre. Collins, greater than Gabriel any day of the week. Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Okay, moving on. (laughs) 
So are you taking it personal then that it's the attitude of at least the novelist and probably the filmmakers that they think that the people that have your taste are shallow? No, because I'm used to defending my taste anyway, and it's not my only taste. My tastes are diverse, but I can laugh because especially since we're talking about music that's coming up on 40 years old, it's not really all that relevant. When this movie came out, the songs were still 20 years old. We're talking about classic rock right now. I'm not going to get too upset by it, but I do realize that this movie is making fun of me Mm -hmm. and the person I wanted to be when I was in high school. It is targeting me. Right. Do you have a sense of irony about yourself the way that the filmmakers do about your ideal? Yes. That is the interesting thing. Like, if you aspire to this, you might not really like this film. For me, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is just confirmation bias. It's confirming all my biases about yuppies and the rich and Wall Street and bad pop music. So, like, I'm having a great time with it. (laughs) Now, if you read the book, I get more of a sense of the theme being that everyone is the same and interchangeable. And that the horror of this, the existential crisis that Patrick is having, is that... He actually would like to get caught. I think it becomes the theme of this movie later on, but like no one even knows who he is. And that's the horror of it. The cop that comes to find him is like almost his doppelganger. It's someone that has the same education as him, the same experiences, the same age. They were to look alike. And so you might even wonder, is this just another form of himself. Again, it builds onto the whole idea that maybe all of this is happening in one dude's head, or maybe we live in a world where everyone is interchangeable clones. But by casting Willem Dafoe, you take that off the table. Yes. (laughs) Very unique, distinctive face. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't look like anybody else, and I think you have to go with him when you're in an indie production because he's definitely name recognition. And, you know, he's a good actor, too. He's going to bring something to this part. But it sort of takes away... I don't get in these moments... They have about three different exchanges where this cop comes and tries to pry into Patrick Bateman's head that this might in any way be self-analysis. No, but I did think who's the crazier one because Willem Dafoe is Willem Dafoe on 10 here, right? I mean, he is full-on Green Goblin crazy with those eyes and everything. It's like he plays it in such a way that From the outside, it looks crazy as hell, but yet everything he's saying, it might not be. But I did wonder when you had those two in the room, which one was the more psychotic? Mm. Well, maybe that's just Defoe carries that wherever he goes. He did play Jesus once. I just want to say he's not always the crazy psychotic killer, but most of the time, yes. No, but his smile, his eyebrows in this one. It's his face. He just got a look. (laughs) Lizard-like sometimes, yeah. There's a gecko quality, like reptilian in a way. But it's interesting, in the commentary with the director, Mary Heron, she said she had him do three different takes for every line that he had. She wanted him to give a take where she says, play it like you know Patrick did it. Then the next one, play it like you have no idea that he did it. And then play it like you have some suspicion. And then she would intercut those so that you feel it in the performance. You would feel like sometimes when he's holding up the Huey and Lewis in the news CD, that's an accusation. I got you. I know that you killed that man and I know you did it to this damn song. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's what I'm like. Oh, he knows he's behind these murders. Why else would you buy a Huey Lewis CD? Because it's great music. But then they pull back from that. And then sometimes you really 
feel like, oh, he just wants to be a buddy and go to these lunches. Like, when they end up going to lunch, and I feel like Patrick is paying for that, I'm like, this is just a cop that wishes he made what these <laughs> bankers are making. He's a private investigator, right? He's not even a real cop. He has no authority. He's just looking into it. Yeah, you're right. It's early on, it's established. It's not even a homicide. He's just, someone has gone missing. And again, this is a world where someone can be a star and seem important and then be completely disposable. That's the horror of it, is that you have no sense of permanency to your personality, to your career, to your life. That's what's so frightening, I think. If you were to play this more as a horror movie, I do think if Cronenberg, per se, were doing this material... I think there would be more consideration for that kind of suspense and terror. My thing is, up to this point, I felt like the film had pacing and flow, and I saw where it was going, and the first time he made a personal kill is his mistake, and now there's this detective on his heels, and even though the detective doesn't seem to have much, the walls are closing in on him, he's getting a little bit more and more panicked, and then the movie just, like, stops and decides to tread water for 30 minutes. I can't believe how it just loses any sense of urgency as we decide to have dates and more hooker three ways and just these diversions. I was really enjoying this movie. Then we get this next half hour. I feel like they're all at least attempted murders. I think that this is the difference between a slasher movie and this movie is that many times Patrick Bateman is about to do the deed, but the guy at the urinal turns around and kisses him instead. Like, you know, like they're failed attempts. You see how bad Patrick is at the serial killing thing because every time he takes somebody out, he can't close the deal. Yeah, which can lead to the theory that maybe he didn't kill anyone, that this is all in his head because we see how bad he is when he is trying to do it during this part of the film. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you wonder, like, or at least I think you're supposed to wonder, like, okay, if like his girlfriend, Reese Witherspoon, you know, he's going to break up with her. Will he have to kill her to fully get away from her because she's not prepared to leave him? I think if you were constructing a narrative, and again, this is what I would want to do with that novel, then you would definitely make, you would build that suspense. You would make it seem like, oh no, she's going to be the next victim. Or maybe, oh good, she's going to be the next victim. But you would want to have have the audience you would lead them down these paths and instead what i hear you say arnie and i i fully agree with you is it feels really scattered there's not a sense of narrative carrying you from one scene to the next just things are happening exactly that's what i'm saying is not that there's not murder it's that there's no more motivation to anything it's just repeated beats of things we've seen before this is the book and so the question to ask is is mary heron right for honoring the style and the staccato disruptive narrative or should she have said you know when you make a movie you tell a narrative and you don't try to do what is done in prose if we're in a satire and we're not rooting for our protagonist here, then there needs to be greater character study. And I feel like we are getting a good character study as we see him make mistakes, start to crack. But then I don't feel like we get a whole lot new as we mm -hmm. see these next kills. That's the problem is it feels all very redundant. This is my weird comparison as I was watching this film. I don't know if you guys have seen The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. I have. Okay, French-speaking film, Spanish director, surrealist film. You might be happy to know Mary Heron said it was a source of inspiration. She actually looked at that film to make this movie. 
Okay, I definitely got that vibe. I'm like, oh, this is the American version of someone trying to do an artsy surreal film. They're yes. still gonna have sensationalist murders and all that kind of stuff because we're American. But yeah, in that film, it's a group of rich people just trying to have dinner and it just keeps getting interrupted and they just keep walking around. And it's again, at times it almost does feel like it's a one note joke, just making fun of the rich. But that's how I feel about this film. Like, yeah, this is a maybe somewhat surreal film, you know, with all whether murders happen or not. But it is maybe a little bit one note at times, but it's there to lampoon and satirize the rich. And on that level, it's really working for me, just like the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. I think you've made the director very happy. And I think good. I think you've <laughs> underlined something that was a conscious choice for her. And I think... Yes, it's the difference between an art movie and a commercial movie. Like, she ultimately decided, I'm making a small, unconventional movie, as opposed to try and turn this into something that Leonardo DiCaprio would star in. Like, she intentionally has chosen a path that will mean less people will like it. And is that wise? I can tell from my own experience, as someone that wasn't crazy about the novel, I would have wanted to see more shaping. Because I do feel like... Yeah, it just becomes a bunch of laugh-in sketches. And one note, one joke is the criticism I have for this movie. It does feel like it hits the same beat repeatedly. Yeah, I agree. I was really enjoying it until this stretch. And that does include partially the tease of the date with Gene. You know, is he going to, is he not? Will he, won't he? Yeah, you could call this a bunch of one-note jokes, but I find it hilarious. Like, he kind of has sympathy, and he's not going to kill her. He's putting the murder weapons away, and then she almost puts that spoon on his table. And, like, he pulls out that nail gun right away. Like, that is the sin. That is the crime that's going to get her murdered. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's a good joke. I'll put it that way. It is funny to see someone that is so image-conscious that they're willing to kill in this way over trivial things, that this is what he's going to to fight and die over, these kinds of silliness. But I do feel like maybe the issue is then it's too much about Patrick, and I would like to get to know some of these other characters. Jean is an interesting one. Chloe Savigny, she was the star of Kids just a few years before and has done a lot of work in indie films. I generally tend to like her. I tend to think of her as a compelling, normal person, usually a normal person in an abnormal situation. And I have a lot of empathy for Jean. You know, he picks on her a lot. You know, she's never able to dress for him. She tries to wear those power suits with the shoulder pads, and he wants high skirts and high (laughs) heels. Yeah, you say, oh, maybe they should have, we could get some empathy with the fiance, Reese Witherspoon's character. But yeah. no, I feel that is all Gene. Like, that is the one character that I don't want murdered in this film. It's important to have, even in a satire, one person that's the innocent. That, in this case, is Gene. We, I just don't have enough Gene in this movie. I feel like, yeah, it wasn't enough just that he invited her over for a date and almost put a nail through her head. In the book, it should be said they did end up getting married and having kids and stuff. So oh, like, wow. it does develop. Yeah, here, it seems like it's going to go somewhere because after the date, you think maybe she's got a sense of something. She's going to find his disturbing drawings later goes nowhere nothing yeah i agree i feel like there's too many background characters that don't even get a real good moment a lot of his buds you know like they have one interesting moment where they're crowing you know saying awful things like there's no such thing as a woman with a good personality and then patrick goes a little bit too far and does that ed gein quote and they're all like (laughs) even for us that's a little gross that was helpful to see that that patrick is 
going beyond the normal misogyny of this culture. But I really feel like those other guys, you know, Justin Thoreau, who's gone on to be a notable actor, and Josh Lucas, we saw in the last Purge film, like, these are people that we would normally expect to have a good scene or two. I don't know what they do. Even Willem Dafoe, I feel like he drops out. And I'm like, I really wanted him to be the guy at the end that gets the confession and not some random lawyer. Yeah, it's... He has the lunch where he's like, oh, well, this guy has an alibi. Where was he? He was at lunch with you. Oh, so I'm completely in the clear. And that's, I think, the last time we see Defoe. And even the final murder of the hooker with the friend, where he gets the two women going at each other. Yeah, Christy comes back, it should be said. She had the earlier scene where she just got tortured, but got to leave with her money, but she couldn't resist getting back into that limo. And did we meet Elizabeth earlier? No, but that is the screenwriter, Guinevere Turner, and she intentionally wanted to put herself in here. She thought it would be the right moment to, you know, she's pretending to be the girl that's never been with another girl, and the screenwriter is a lesbian, and she thought the whole Whitney Houston stuff was funny, and kind of sad, too, because I do feel like at that time it would have been known, but not widely known about Whitney's, you know, gay life and the tragedy of that. It ends up like... Whitney has a gay life? Yeah, I don't know about this now. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm sorry to blow the lid off of that. I thought everybody knew. Yes, Whitney Houston is a very tragic figure. She was denied her gay lover, was made to marry Bobby Brown, became a drug addict, and destroyed herself. Yeah, it's a sad story about a woman that was not allowed to be who she was. I feel like that colors this moment. Like It really will change the moment now when you go back and watch this scene and hear the greatest love of all when you see this forced girl-on-girl interplay. There's a certain subtext that gets added to that. But anyway, this is probably the scene that the horror fans have been waiting for. If if we've gotten a little bit like tired of the one joke, you got to think that the people that have come here for Freddy Krueger are, you know, is this going to be enough? No, I came here for Freddy in 2000. Not enough. I really wanted to turn it off at this point, but I have that completism where I can't not finish. But did you not love the idea that he's going to be completely naked, and, you know, with gym shoes on? Yes, running down the hall with just yeah. shoes on, covered in blood, like that grin on his face. It's such a great scene. I feel like anyone would love this scene. Like, removed from the context of the larger movie, high recommend from everybody for this moment. I'll agree now, back then it was too little too late. Here, you see, back then I was like, oh, that's not realistic. You could never hit her with a chainsaw like that. Now I'm like, oh, yeah, this is funny. Yeah, and again, I don't think this is supposed to be realistic. Either it's all going on in his head or what we're seeing is a subjective view. This is how he sees the scene going down. Because, look, if you're running down the hall with a chainsaw at 1, 2, 3 in the morning, whatever time it is, you're waking people up. They're going to be angry. They're going to be yelling at you, opening those doors. Like, But no one wakes up. I wanted to know why the whole floor was empty, because Christy is banging on doors, there's a chainsaw revving, nobody opens the door. That's what I'm saying, yeah. It's not about the realism. It needed a line of, like, Paul had just moved into a new building and the tenants hadn't moved in yet. Again, like, that was my sense, was that this was, you know, later we're going to see the realtor and she's going to be selling units and what have you. Like, that Paul, as always, was at the head of the curve. I also think it works, again, if you're looking at yuppies and you're saying how awful they are, that they're just indifferent. Like, yeah, someone could be getting chainsawed outside their door, but why is that their problem? 
Or anyone in New York. <laughs> there are those famous stories about people turning away yeah. in times of crisis. So for whatever reason, mostly for the comedy, we're just appreciating the fact that this fantastical scene that has no realism to it is occurring. And this woman who knew better, didn't listen to that instinct, and now has found all of these bodies in this apartment and is trying to escape a man who is wearing very pristine white tennis shoes and can drop a chainsaw <laughs> from the top of the stairwell onto her back. But aren't you still feeling the slowness as good as the scene is? Aren't you wishing we'd known these characters before? Like, instead of Christy, shouldn't this maybe have been Courtney or something to put an end to the Samantha Mathis character role? And Samantha Mathis, you know, of course, from Pump Up the Volume and Broken Arrow here doing a good performance. Yeah, of all the characters, she's the one that you feel like they actually could cut. What is her importance here? On one hand, she is the fiancé of the man who is in love with Patrick, and so she's his beard, and that never really comes up. I don't think that's why Patrick is seeing her. And it's also mentioned that she is sort of a, a restaurant whore. Like, she wasn't going to go on a date with Patrick until he promised her a table at Dorcia, and then he got her so high that she wasn't able to tell the difference between Barcia and Dorcia. So he took her <laughs> to the wrong, cheaper restaurant and got out of it, you know, easy or whatever. But funny little bits. Again, this movie is filled with that little stuff. But what is this character? What does it mean? I feel like she has one dramatic scene where she's going to tell him I'm pregnant, right? Like she's like, I got something to tell you and it's leading somewhere. And that would be the obvious development. Is that what it was? I wondered what it was. I hadn't thought about pregnancy. Is it in the book? No, but I mean, there is a pregnancy storyline, but like that would be the thing I would just naturally think like, what does this mistress that I've been sleeping with have to tell me that's so important and she's serious about it? Like, yeah, she's pregnant and the baby's yours, but just kind of goes away. And I saw the deleted scenes. They aren't there either. It's strange that there isn't missing narrative. It was the decision of the filmmakers to just not complete any of these storylines. And so we have a whole bunch of very vapid characters that kind of float in and out. But you mentioned, is this real or is it all a dream? Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner said, we hate movies that all end up with, it was all just a fantasy and didn't happen. To us, everything that you are going to see, including the ATM that wants to eat cats, and all of the shootouts, they shot with the idea that this would be really actually happening in our reality. I mean, that ATM's not going to really be happening. That is the weirdest Dick Clark, Ed McMahon bloopers and practical jokes ever to send a cat out and then have an ATM say, feed it to me. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was amusing. But again, they didn't see this as a dream sequence. I think we experienced it as that. But, like, obviously he's getting more psychologically disturbed but like what this means it's his subjective viewpoint obviously this is not reality no atm has never asked to eat a cat oh i mean when he shoots at that cop car and it blows up like a diehard action film yeah it's obviously not what's happening in real life yeah well they wanted it to be they shot it with the idea that you would accept it no you don't blow up a car like that unless it's supposed to be satirical yeah. unless it's an actual action movie this is where I do think it's all in his head is because if you're blowing up a car like that and you don't have a bazooka and you just have this pistol and the car's behind another car, this can't be 
reality. Even Bale, like the way he acts during that explosion, he's surprised by it. Like even Bateman didn't expect that to happen. I agree. I don't know what this director is on about. There's no way to look at these moments and think they're really happening. They obviously are over the top. It's obviously that he's had a psychotic break. It's obvious that maybe all of this has been in his head. Yeah, that doesn't mean there's not some kind of shootout happening, but what we're seeing is subjective from Bateman's point of view. And maybe they just didn't know how to shoot that well. Maybe that's a limitation of she hadn't had to really do that before. She had someone shoot Andy Warhol, but she's never had a (laughs) diehard scene. And so maybe because they were so comfortable letting everything being goofy and comedy, they let a moment that they wanted to play as serious, violent, realistic massacre end up seeming like an impossible joke. Yeah, I feel like this whole killing spree is supposed to be funny. Like, he's shooting doormen because they're calling him the wrong name. Like, I mm-hmm. I feel like this is where it totally breaks with reality. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they were punking me on the commentary <laughs> track, but they insisted that their hope was that there could be a reading of this movie that these things actually happened. But they also admitted that the source novel itself largely supports the idea that Patrick Bateman been probably killed no one, that in the end, he is impotent, that he is, for all of his aggression and his misogyny and his fantasies of power and control, has done nothing with his life. Yeah, they're nothing but sketches in his day planner that Gene finds. He may not even be Patrick Bateman. Again, with the way that it goes down, he calls his lawyer and says, Patrick Bateman has done all these horrible things. When he catches up with that lawyer, the lawyer's like, oh, yeah, that dork, he could never do it. So... Yeah, he calls him Davis. Yeah. Who was this man that we thought Christian Bale was? And does he look the way that Christian Bale sees himself? Again, the subjectivity of all of it. It would be an interesting moment if I felt like it was like Fight Club and there was this big twist. But it comes a little sloppy and it comes after I've already suspected that most of this is not real. Yeah, I will say, you know, I'd seen this movie before, so I knew, you know, he's going to go into Paul's apartment and it's getting remodeled and there's no bodies there. I'm like, okay, so the first time I watched this, it was all in his head. It didn't really happen. He's just a crazy guy. Watching it this time, I did think, okay, maybe there is a subjective reading where we're seeing things through Bateman's point of view, but there's some kind of mischief going on. And because this is about class, like it's rich people looking out for each other. Like, yeah, get out of here. We don't want to show you this apartment because you filled it up with bodies, but we also want to sell this apartment and make some money off of it. You know, right. Again, I think there are different readings for this. See, I took this as after thinking the entire night before was a fantasy. When he goes to that apartment, I think that they're still playing with that expectation. He goes in, there's no bodies. Oh my God, was this all in his head? But when that realtor shows up, what I think is she doesn't want to devalue the apartment. It's not rich people looking out for each other. It's rich people looking out for themselves. Mm -hmm. If you find out that there were eight bodies here, you're not going to be able to get the million a month. Yeah, it's rich people being rich people. They want to make a buck off this apartment. You can't tell potential buyers that there was eight dead bodies in there. Right. And the director said she wanted both readings to be there. Like, they don't even have an opinion themselves as to which is true. Yeah, the way the realtor plays it, I think she disposed of the bodies. Yeah, definitely watching it this time with my memory being, oh, yeah, it's all in his head. Watching it this time, I was looking for those clues that it's all in his head. And I came away with going, "Eh, I don't know, maybe it did all happen in some form. A funhouse mirror. What is truth? I mean, I think that's what we're to be left with. But should we be left with the 
political metaphor of Ronald Reagan and Iran Contra. They take the extra step, and the book did this too, of trying to imply that everything that we just saw wasn't just a fantasy, but might have a allegorical reading about Reagan's 80s politics. He goes to sit with his friends. They're talking about restaurants and reservations. He looks up on the TV and there's old Ronnie pretending to be the old man, but lying through his teeth about everything that he had done to support violence. I mean, it's a movie about the 80s yuppies. I I expect Reagan to come into it at some point. Maybe not with the Iran Contra affair, but, you know, it's already a commentary on Reagan and his policies. Isn't this hitting the nail a little too on the head? The director was worried about it. She said, you know, it isn't my normal instinct to go this direct, but it was in the book and it is some kind of ending. And I do feel like, again, my instincts would be to try and find the spine of the story. You definitely get the sense that we're at the end. Like, I wouldn't know how else you could in this movie except on a dramatic moment. And we have this real tight close-up into his eyes. He gives this monologue about... Basically, he's horrified that justice hasn't come for him, that secretly every killer wants to be caught. They want to live in a moral world. They want to believe that there is a morality to what happens because the alternative is horrific. You can do whatever you want and it doesn't matter. And you can be thrown away and it doesn't matter. So I guess they've put a little button on it. They've added a little Ronald Reagan face to it. But you're right. It was Reagan is looming large over any movie about the 80s. And I definitely feel like they've ended where they started with Patrick, looking into his eyes and saying nothing is behind them. But what's behind this? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend American Psycho? Jacob. Yeah, I think as this discussion's gone, like we talk about narrative and character, and I just don't think that's what this film is about. This is about a time and a culture, and I'm okay with that. Again, I talked about the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, which there's a lot of characters in it, but it's not about any one character. It's about class and politics and all those kind of things. It's just got a different agenda than your typical kind of narrative where we want to learn about a character and go on their journey. This is about 80s yuppie culture and how it's destructive and creative psychos and I'm okay with that because I like the joke here. It's not a long film. It keeps me engaged with all these monologues about all these awful bands that I like but Arnie, some people may like them and that's their prerogative. Anyone can like what they like but yes, you want to make fun of Huey Lewis and the news and Phil Collins, I'm down for that. I'm going to be there and enjoying that and yeah, just this take on again, views that I had, you know Arnie, you talked about when you were 15 you wanted to be on Wall Street. Like, I did you know, as a kid, look at the world, look to my dad and go, okay, that's what it means to be an adult. And you have business cards and you go to lunch meetings. And so like, I do recognize, like I did have those tendencies because that's what I thought the world was as a kid. And now I grew up and I don't want any of that stuff. I don't want to have lunch with anyone. I don't want no business cards to hand out. So maybe because of my own personal politics and view on the world, this appeals more to me, but I have a lot of fun with this film. I think it's funny. Yeah. If you want a slasher, this is not the film. This is a joke about, yep. And so for me, I have a lot of fun with it. It's a real solid recommend for American Psycho. Stuart. See, I'm torn. I don't know. Like what the compliment I can give is if you like the book, I think this is a faithful, satisfying adaptation. It captures Brett Easton Ellis's superficial world of privilege where Wall Street bankers imagine they're lady killers, but they're actually dorks who are rocking out to Phil Collins and yeah, co-opting the edginess of New York and ruining the world. Like, that's really what it is. That New York has this dark edginess, and then they come along and steal it 
And that's what gets killed, really. That's the murders that are happening, is you're taking that edge, you're killing it off. My problem is that I, I thought the book was kind of thin, and at 400 pages, overlong, and tried my patience. And so I was really hoping the filmmakers could improve on it, that there was more that they could add to Ellis's shallowness, make it a better satire by adding more dimension. It's what I would struggle to do if this were a project handed to me. And unfortunately, I don't think that it's any better than the book. It's pretty much the book. And then the other problem is we have all these other movies. And maybe that's not fair, but yeah, Fight Club beat it to the punch, did it better. I mean, Fincher's film is endlessly inventive. There's so many ideas in that movie. It just keeps every scene is like, wow, changing your perspective about what's going on, about toxic masculinity and consumerism. Whereas this movie is a single joke played again and again and again. Wolf of Wall Street, I think it's funnier. Hell, even House That Jack Built, a movie we covered last year, and we mentioned Lars von Trier kind of used American Psycho as an inspiration. I think there's more interesting themes in that movie. And so, do you need another one? That's not one of the better ones. So how big is your appetite for satirical targets this broad about bankers and commerce people being monsters, essentially? It all comes down to bail. In the end, I really do like what Christian Bale is doing here. His Patrick Bateman is enjoyable. I do feel like he holds this movie together when it's breaking apart. But I'm still going to say not quite good enough. In the end, despite what Mary Heron did with the budget and the source material, I just don't think that this is an essential movie. It's okay, but mediocre is not a, an endorsement. And I can't say that there was anything about this movie that was so good that you just got to seek it out. But it's, you know, not offensive, more like a mild not recommend. And I think I should have been pretty clear throughout this podcast that when this movie started and for the first half hour, 45 minutes, I was very much Team Jacob as far as thinking that this was a good satire and I was laughing at it, at me, at society, just having a good time with it. But then, yeah, around the time Willem Dafoe shows up, when I think the movie's going to really kick it into high gear, it actually drops in, just starts coasting. And then I become Team Stewart. And it's like, you know, I am liking what Christian Bale's doing, but he's doing maybe too much of it. And it just seems to be wandering around aimlessly. And the climax with the kitten comes out of nowhere. I mean, there's just been so much randomness going on. The way he decides to kill a cat, who knew that was going to start the big shootout chase scene? So I... Uh, I'm a little bit more on the borderline, but it's clearly a recommend for me because of what the film did have going on for the first 45 minutes. I think that Christian Bale and the first hour of this film is a must-see. And then you can turn it off because the end is so unsatisfying and the Reagan thing so on the nose that... I don't think you're going to miss anything if you just turn it off after lunch with Willem Dafoe. No, you're going to miss the best scene. You're going to miss the chainsaw. Chainsaw, yeah. That's the scene I say. Like, everyone needs to see <laughs> that scene. And then however else you need to watch, go for it. But I agree with you. You don't need to finish this movie. So I'm going to eke it over and give it a recommend, which is a far cry from what I thought when Brent picked this movie, I'm like, oh boy, I wanted to go back. I had an inkling that I might like it, but I wasn't sure. I didn't like it back then. Coming back, it wasn't as good 
as I thought it would be, as I'd built it up to be in my head over 20 years, but it certainly wasn't as bad as when I went in thinking I was going to see Michael Myers, the businessman. And I have to just call out one of the best movie soundtracks of all time. If you just took every (laughs) song from this movie and put it on once. So much Phil Collins and Huey Lewis. One of the best. I woof. Okay. I mean, I am struggling to decide what the opening credits of this is. I mean, Huey Lewis in the news is the obvious one, but do I go with Mars pump up the volume? That's got a good rhythm for the start, but are we ever going to do Bright Lights Big City with Michael J. Fox? Because that had the best use of pump up the volume. I mean, oh, so many songs I love. Well, yes, I'm glad that that was the life preserver that kept you afloat on this film. Again, I think we're all appreciated the same things about the movie, but you guys liked doing it more than I did. I think that's what it basically came down to. I just got tired of the film. Oh, I did too by the end, and I was disappointed by that fact because I was in pretty strong recommend territory for the first half, but... I do strongly recommend Brent because he is a great guy picking this movie. You know, two recommends and one of them is a weak not recommend. And by the way, hit YouTube, Huey Lewis parodied this scene. They reshot this scene? Entirely, frame for frame, with Huey Lewis as Patrick Bateman saying, have you heard of American Psycho and killing Weird Al for doing I Want a New Duck? Oh, Okay, that's going sort of deep, but okay. funny. Did you laugh at that one? I didn't die. It's funny or die, so. Okay, all right. And because Arnie is a completist, we're not going to do it next Tuesday. Everyone knows that the sequel to Venom is coming out this weekend, and that's what we're going to put out next week. But there was also a sequel to American Psycho. And yes, we are not going to leave that on the table. We are going to cover it a week from Friday. We're not going to demand someone pay for our review of that one. (laughs) I agree. We're doing it for free. We're doing this all wrong, guys. He paid for one movie and we said, no, no, no. Let's do this all-American girl with Mila Kunis in the Christian Bale role or something. You might enjoy it more. And William Shatner is in it. Mm. Oh, I'll tell you right now, I said I wanted to re-watch American Psycho. I wanted to revisit it. Well, a few years back, I'm at home alone, and I'm flipping through channels back when I had cable, and I see it's just about to start American Psycho 2. I didn't even know there was a 2. No one did. And then I see it's Mila Kunis and William Shatner, and I'm like, well, I've wanted to revisit American Psycho. I'm sure this is just the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go watch S. Darko because I want to revisit Donnie Darko. Why not? (laughs) And so I suffered through it and I felt like if I had to, others shall too. So we are going to do two free shows next week with Venom and then, yes, American Psycho 2, All-American Girl with William Shatner. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oof. Well... And this Friday, it should just be said, we are finishing up our Silver Level series. So if you've been with us for the Home Invasion Classics, we are finally getting to that sequel of Don't Breathe 2 uh, that came out a month ago in theaters. And I think it's streaming now. So everyone can get it. Yep. Everyone can get the movie and everyone can get our podcast with just a donation of $10. You can hear all five Home Invasion films. And then in two weeks after America Psycho 2... 
We're going to be doing our Platinum Series with A Quiet Place, so hopefully you can donate, join us for all of those films, plus paranormal activity that's going to carry us through into the new year. All the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And we have yet another giveaway this week. We're going fast and furious with our giveaways. Last week, we gave away digital copies of Cruella. Today, we're kicking off the giveaway for F9. We've got five Blu-ray combo packs, not just digital downloads, Blu-ray combo packs for F9, The Fast Saga. We reviewed that earlier this year, one of the top grossing films of the summer. And on home video, there's a director's cut of this movie that I'm curious if it helps John Cena's character out. But you can win one of these combo packs if you're a subscriber to our In Focus newsletter or a member of our Facebook listeners group. Again, both of those are just absolutely tremendous things, I think. The In Focus newsletter, I love because of what Jason puts into it every week, bringing the podcast news, the movie news, finding out what my fellow now playing members are watching. And then the Facebook group, the members make that the best Facebook group I've ever been a part of. It's just so much fun to talk movies in there and talk podcasts. And if you're subscribed to the newsletter and in the Facebook group, you have two chances to win. The winners will be announced October 8th, and we've got plenty more giveaways after this one too, so good luck. So thank you, Brent, for picking this movie. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time... I have to go return some videotapes. You'll have to excuse me, I have a lunch meeting with Cliff Huxtable at Four Seasons in 20 minutes. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. I think it is the group's undisputed masterpiece. And a special thank you to Brett Biesinger for his support of the show and choosing American Psycho for our review. There's something sweet about you. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. If I'm not looking out for number one, then who is? Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. I knew we should have gone to the movies. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Of course, the subject matter itself attracts some weirdos. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. So, same time next week? You bet. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Sort of like Robin Hood, you know? You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you spell donation? And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. I have a schedule, a plan, a dream. I need it. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. Oh, 
Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when they're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. I think that'll follow nicely. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. <laughs> I'm just a happy camper. <laughs> Rocking and a rolling. <laughs> Associate produced by Jason Latham. Some guys are just born cool, I guess. Now Playing is edited by Santiago and Arnie. Something wrong? You're sweating. Now playing credits, read by Brock. God, I could tell you anything. You'd still never know the real me. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. Aren't we violating some sort of privacy code here? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Well, I could tell you that, Halberstram, but then I'd have to kill you. (laughs) Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Eerie. Really eerie. An old woman witnesses this, so he shoots and kills the woman. Other witnesses are shot, and Patrick ends up on the run from the police and a telephone. That's weird. (laughs) Whose is that? It's mine. Oh, okay. (laughs) I normally unplug the phone, but we haven't gotten any phone calls at night, so I just didn't think there was a need. But Ipsis is calling. I feel like that colors this moment. Like It really will change the moment now when you go back and watch this scene and hear the greatest love of all when you see this forced girl-on-girl interplay. There's a... Well, truthfully, you know, I do feel like that's the greatest love of all, but... <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. An MFF threesome? <laughs> I think slasher movies and porn films... That's how he's learned anything about the world and how to have sex and how to kill people. It worked for me. Do you almost put a hooker in the hospital? I don't know what he did, but she had to get surgery. I don't want to go into that story again, Jacob. (laughs) Did you pull out the hanger and do something awful?